Scientists have identified the key ways in which we humans are destroying the ecosystems on which we depend. Is there climate change? Yeah. I mean, will it change back? Probably, that's what I think. How dare you? The British Conservation Alliance was launched by students in the United Kingdom to advocate for market-based environmental reforms. You should be empowered to deal with those problems. Lebanon, Poland, Spain, the US, the UK, Austria. It's just really cool seeing all these people gather to talk about these ideas when we weren't doing this a year ago, and we're doing it now. We can begin to defend the Earth against the disaster of global warming. The Green Market Podcast. Hello, I'm Luke Warren, host of the Green Market Podcast, a show from the British Conservation Alliance in association with the Austrian Economic Centre and Cedargold that focuses on market environmentalism, ESG and impact investing, and the application of the Austrian School of Economics in tackling climate change and achieving our environmental ambitions. COVID-19 has devastated the world and significantly affected societies and communities. The obvious impact is the catastrophic death toll suffered by virtually every nation. One other repercussion of the pandemic and the global response to it has been the undermining of progress towards climate, nature and development goals. Take, for example, the reduction of recycling. Quarantine policies established in many countries have led to an increase in the demand of online shopping for home delivery, which ultimately increased the amount of household waste from shipped packaged materials. As we emerge from the pandemic and vaccination programmes roll out across the world, we now have a unique opportunity to grow back green. According to the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, delivering a green recovery is vital for tackling the urgent and interconnected challenges of climate change and biodiversity loss. Today's episode will focus on the opportunities and challenges presented by a green recovery and the market-based solutions that ought to be implemented. I'm joined by Andrew Lay and Richard Belluni. Andrew Lay is the International Director of Regeneration International, an international movement that seeks to reverse global warming and end world hunger by facilitating and accelerating the global transition to regenerative agriculture and land management. Richard Bernoulli is the founder and CEO of Cedargold, which provides investment advisory services and research and consulting into ESG and sustainability. Thank you both for joining me here today. Um, I would like to start by discussing the current situation and the effects the COVID-19 pandemic has had on environmentalism. The pandemic has caused some very significant changes to our natural planet, according to the International Energy... Sorry, let me try that question again. I'd like to start by discussing the current situation and the effects the COVID-19 pandemic has had on environmentalism. The pandemic has caused some very significant changes to our natural planet. According to the International Energy Agency, oil demand dropped by 435,000 barrels globally in the first three months of 2020 compared to the same period in the previous year. What major effects has the COVID-19 pandemic had on the natural planet for better or for worse? Richard, would you like to start? Sure. What we've been doing within our organization also is making a list of the specific UN Sustainable Development Goals that are actually getting worse or, or breached in the sense that uh, things are getting worse from, from previous years. Uh, in other words, we're not going in the right direction. And there's several of those. So we, we have an ongoing list, uh, UN SDG 15, 14, 12. Uh, we're also tabulating uh, where, where the results are getting worse and shortcoming. But 
there's several aspects to this that need to be considered. I mean, here in Canada, we have public transportation that essentially continues to run uh, with empty, empty uh, passengers in it. There's, there's literally hardly anybody, in some cases, no, nobody traveling, but they continue to run so wastefully uh, uh, burning energy to, to run um, subway systems, buses, trains all, all over the, the area here. So that, that's uh, just totally wasteful. Um, you've got the masks uh, as well that are, that are now becoming a very similar problem to plastic uh, water bottles globally. So there's a big issue on that in terms of pollution from all of the disposable masks that are being worn. Um, and uh, I mean, a lot of it is stemming from agenda-based or government-based environmentalism initiatives. Uh, we've all heard of the World Economic Forum Great Reset. A lot of that is, is very centralized based uh, type of approach to environmentalism. We all know what happened to the centralized approach, for example, that the Soviet Union took. I mean, just total disaster in the environment, radiation all over the place, uh, and in lakes that were drying up, uh, just this total disaster. Not to mention that uh, the energy usage per capita was about three times more than, than the Western world. Um, and, uh, you know, so we're actually keeping track of a lot of these issues and happy to, to make this spreadsheet available to everybody. I remember back in May when uh, I, I finally got to start traveling last year on the tube in London, and it was exactly the same st story as you said in Canada with tube stations being completely empty, but trains still running. Um, but yeah, Andrew, what are your thoughts? Okay, look, I think there's two very important numbers that say everything about, about what is happening. And last year, in, in May last year at Manalao, the levels of carbon dioxide were 417 parts per million, the most for three and a half um, million years. And this year, in April 7, we hit a new record at Manalao uh, Observatory of 420 parts per million. So, so despite the fact that we're in a pandemic and supposedly the economy is... Uh, you know, the world economy has slowed down. We put three parts, we had an increase of three parts per million of carbon dioxide. Now in the decade leading up, leading up to the Paris Climate Change Agreement, that's, you know, 2015, it was averaging two parts per million carbon dioxide. Since then, we've go between two to 3.3 parts per million per year. So the rate of us polluting the atmosphere with greenhouse gases is increasing, not decreasing. So that says everything about what we are doing as a global economy. We are making things worse. Then I want to talk about plastic pollution and you know, now we're starting to understand how, how dangerous it is, but we're also starting to understand as part of that is what we call the forever chemicals that, uh, that are widespread, not just pesticides, but plastics in our food, in our packaging, in our baby bottles. And these chemicals we know 
not only cause cancer, but they are endocrine disruptors. In other words, they disrupt our hormone systems and for instance, reproduction, and we're seeing massive you know, um, declines in reproduction rates. But this pervasion now of different toxic chemicals is affecting the whole ecosystem, not just human health. You know, last week, 25% of the sea lions in California have cancer as a result of these chemicals. Another report just came out this week looking at the, the decline in um, the biodiversity in the sea as a result of these chemicals. You know? So we're looking at the, the lack of reproduction plus the increase in diseases, and we can see the same in terrestrial ecosystems. And you know, end of the day, we, we can see exactly the same with our species and what we're doing. So if these things aren't, how could I say warning calls? Uh, what is? You know, we we have to stop doing what we're doing, and change very very quickly. The opportunity to rebuild green has opened a fresh debate on the exact path we should take, and this has increasingly come to the forefront of both business leaders and governments across the world. Uh, how do we balance growing green? with other major issues, such as the ones you have outlined, Andre, whether that be you know, uh, health issues or security of our food supply chains. In the UK, politicians have started to raise the prospect of individuals opting to go vegan. What solutions should be championed to ensure sustainable food production, which has become increasingly important and at the forefront of the minds of everyone since the COVID-19 pandemic, whilst also securing food supply chains? I think it's, it's good to take an approach that is multidimensional because there's lots of aspects to this. Uh, but overall, the, the idea is to apply innovation and technology, which are key pillars on the market and based environmentalism approach that we talk on this program show. So specifically, uh, you want to look at IT systems, uh, business processes, uh, systems integration, applications that are involved, infrastructure, and then look at ways to develop direct channels, uh, direct to consumer channels that would be make it more efficient on uh, supply chain and, and food uh, uh, distribution, as well as developing uh, product innovation, uh, very specifically uh, for uh, towards sustainability in in uh, in the food in the food production chain. Also enhancing end-to-end -end supply chain agility and flexibility is another aspect. Optimizing operations, overall operations, um, and even going to the point of protecting against cyber threats, uh, which could present supply chain disruptions along any aspects. Uh, a, lot, a lot of what we do today, right, is online and, and IT-based. So, so a lot of that, uh, and then in terms of the actual uh, production, uh, look, look at sustainable uh, fertilizers, uh, how, how the, the land is farmed. Uh, there's a number of sustainability uh, services that um, Regeneration International specializes in in that regard. And um, Andre, just wondering if you wanted to mention some of those. Yeah, okay, look, thanks Richard. And look, I, I really agree that it's gotta be multifaceted. You know, 
silver bullets and one size fit all are recipes for disaster. And getting back to what Richard said about the great reset, the centralization, we know through history it's disaster. You know, the centralization of the Soviet Union with agriculture led to famines. China, um, the same thing happened. And then when they decentralized agriculture under Deng Xiaoping, that's the beginning of China becoming, you know, what will soon be the largest economy on the planet. So, and in this pandemic, this has been proved true. The larger centralized systems failed. You know, supermarket shelves are empty, but the systems that thrived were the local empowered systems. So the, from our point of view, you know, say the, the small CSAs, organic farmers, did so well supplying their local communities with fresh local food. They are thriving. It's actually, ironically, they, they are some of the big success stories in this pandemic. And it proves the resilience of having local systems and ones that are adapted for local conditions instead of one size fits all. In terms of the agricultural systems, it's the same too. It's not, you know, we need to move away from these um, industrial systems, large-scale industrial systems with simple recipes. They are industrial disasters. They, they are destroying our soils, destroying our ecosystems. You know, you look at, you know, the Mississippi Basin in the USA and, and uh, the algal blooms and the dead zone in um, the, the uh, Gulf of Mexico, or you could look at the same thing, the, the Bay of Biscay off France the, and, and, and parts of the Mediterranean, these massive dead zones that are due to the fertilizer, soil erosion. And then we can start looking at all the health problems that are coming from the pesticides in our food and, and, and the poor quality of our food we need to take it back to new systems. And where we brought in the word regeneration is that we need to move away from just being sustainable. Sustainable means keeping the status quo without running it down. We don't want to keep our status quo. It's, it's crap. <laughs> it's a problem. Regeneration is about improving the system and making it better. And can I say, with the systems that we are looking at in agriculture now, we can move away from these toxic chemicals, toxic fertilizers, start restoring the ecology, working with agroecology, the ecological sciences rather than the chemical sciences. And now our systems are more productive. We're getting higher yields. And not just of commodities, we can also talk about other important yields like biodiversity yields. So we're producing more food. We're also producing more biodiversity outcomes and also um, climate change outcomes, which I can talk more about as well in terms of reversing climate change. I think uh, an important part of kind of securing our food supply chains as well is ensuring a higher standard of animal welfare. 
And the conventional ways of going about that, whether that be a Pigovian tax or food standard labeling, have worked to some degree, but they could be more effective. And other solutions that incentivize farmers should also be looked at, um, whether that perhaps be an animal welfare unit that could be traded on a commodity market uh, and, and effectively make an animal welfare unit something that is valued and tradable. But um, I'd like to move on to how these policies that we have kind of discussed could affect developing nations, especially those in Africa, which have really been not only affected by COVID-19, but by a great number of other factors that have undermined their food supply chains. So Richard, perhaps you would like to start. Yes, I think the, um, there's, there's a lot of aspects to this. Uh, there's been this emphasis on, you know, essential type of items, which may not include items coming from developing nations. So they've, they've been excluded on those markets uh, artificially by government edicts, you know, as part of the lockdowns. Uh, so that's been detrimental to developing nations, um, as well as uh, just in general, long-term type of techniques that have been promoted uh, by, by the developed world, uh, which in, in large part tend, tend to go against uh, biodiversity. Some of those principles that Andre has mentioned. Um, and uh, a lot of it has been uh, fueled by this centralized and industrial approach. Uh, so, you know, the better, the better solution is to look for more decentralized and localized solutions that, that are pillars also of market-based environmentalism. Look, I, I agree. And, you know, if I want to talk about Africa, I can give very good examples of that because uh, I've had a, you know, a lot of experience there. So what I want to say, actually, the first market is the kitchen table. One of the things that we did wrong with um, industrial agriculture is, you know, they, they said to people, oh, you know, you, you need to go to export markets, cash markets, and then you can get the money and feed your family. But, it, you know, as we're saying, farming, you have the cart before the horse. It's the wrong way around. We need to turn it around so that everybody has a kitchen garden and, and, and you feed your family first, and then the excess you take out to markets. And then, of course, the closest market, the easiest for most people to access is your local market. Then, if you've got more, we can then go out to international markets. There's a, there's a role for every market at scale, but we need to get the balance right, you know, empower people locally first and then bring it out to international markets. Now, I, I used to be the president of IFOAM Organics International and uh, we're the global umbrella body for the organic sector. And we started a very successful project in uh, East Africa that's gone out to hundreds of thousands of farmers now where we did exactly that. Now, as part of that, as well as feeding the family, we found some good cash crops, in this case, coffee and pineapples and ethical marketers in Europe so that they could sell these as uh, export markets, cash crops and, and bring money back. Now, these farmers were farmers and what, you know, when I talk about adject poverty, uh, 
when you talk about three months of the year where people went hungry. I remember one of the farms I visited once and they had this, oh, this plant, it's got like an elephant ear leaf called Tara, it had a black leaf. And I, and I said, that's unusual, do you eat that? And they go, no, it's poisonous because there are other forms that we eat. And I said, oh, that's interesting. He said, yeah, we just use it for famine food. I said, how do you use it as famine food if it's poisonous? And they said, oh, we, we harvest it and, and, and we cook it up and we boil it and we keep on boiling it all night long until the children fall asleep. And, and that story still brings tears to my eyes, but I just want to get across what, what real poverty and hunger is to people. And we've turned it around with these systems where they have nice houses, they can feed their families, they can send their children to school, especially the girls, you know, if they've only got enough money for, for they have to pay for education. If they've only got enough money for one child, it'll be the boy, not the girl. You know, so we can have boys and girls educated. They've got enough money for healthcare. They don't get free healthcare. They don't have NHS, you know, they, they, so if you're sick and you don't have money, you die. And, you know, you turn it around now so, so that, that, you know, you bring prosperity and well-being. And, and one of the stories I heard from one of the villages, they said, oh, you know, the, now the women can afford to buy nice clothing. And you go, okay, well, um, that's interesting. You know, why is that important? Well, the women were so poor, they had holes in their clothes. They felt like they were indecent, so they wouldn't socialise. Now that they had nice clothing, they socialise. So, and, you know, the women then bring this sense of well-being and culture. So what, what I'm talking about here is this concept of regeneration. You take people from abject poverty with the right systems. And it's not just about, oh, you know, we're earn you more money or feed. It's about building this sense of well-being, this sense of education, this sense of health in these communities, empowering them. And, you know, and, and I suppose that's the other really important thing is empowering them that they now help the next village and bring this change on, you know, so that we can actually, you know, make this a revolution to take people out of poverty and into well-being and prosperity. So on, on that point about regeneration, um... I think an important point on that is the role of international aid. Um, so in December last year, the Foreign Office in the UK pledged about £47 million in additional funding to alleviate the hunger crisis in Africa, £8 million of which went uh, to the Sahel regions where the UN had warned of catastrophic hunger. Um, what role should international aid from developed nations play in this kind of regeneration and empowerment vision? Uh, there, there is a role, although what is the trend and what we espouse on this program is more of a market-based environmentalism approach. So the, the, the role of government uh, can, can be to at least foster an economy of entrepreneurialism that promotes uh, innovation and technology uh, you know, for solutions, as well as uh, promoting decentralized, localized uh, solutions. 
um, and, and an emphasis on uh, you know, valuing property rights as, as we uh, have that also as a pillar of market environmentalism, how, how that's important and how that uh, uh, presents a value proposition towards uh, bet bettering the environment. Um, an, another way would be to, uh, to, to funnel this type of, of funding towards RFPs uh, that private organizations can bid on for, for setting up a market-based exchanges uh, that, uh, that do carbon credits to help promote sustainability projects in developing countries. You know, so the, these projects could be towards carbon sequestration um, so th this is what uh, a, a firm called Moss M-O-S-S in Brazil is doing. And uh, there's, there's an interesting fact that uh, Regeneration International has, has uh, highlighted in some of their recent articles. I'd like to, uh, to give a quote from one of those, uh, scaling up a small percentage, five to 10% of best practice regenerative and organic systems will result in billions of tons of carbon dioxide per year being sequestered into the soil and into continuous perennial above ground biomass. So the identification funding and deployment of these best practices on just five to 10% or more of the world's croplands, rangelands and forest lands will be more than enough to draw down and cancel out all of the current carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases that are currently being emitted without putting any more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere or the oceans. So that, that's a, an incredible fact. I couldn't have said it better myself. Thanks for, for um, because that, that to us is a really important um, piece of research to show. Um, I think what we wanted to show with the five to 10% is how achievable this is. You know, we don't have to talk about 100% change, but just working with the early adopters we can get this change. I think this is, this is really important. The other one I just want to talk, you know, with what Richard said about markets and entrepreneurship. This is essential. Rather than, you know, this idea of, you know, we, we say helicopter and experts and we throw money to them and, you know, you see all these people get to go in and they do a three-year project, they work, walk away, you come back a year later and, and it's, you know, nothing is there. You might, you, the money has been wasted and the people are disillusioned. It's about, and as Richard said, it's about empowering the local communities and entrepreneurship, micro-entrepreneurship is so powerful. And so one of the best projects I've ever seen is actually in Cambodia. Instead of having, you know, microcredit where we put people into debt, and believe me, if you earn, um, you know, say $100 a year total, and you get a loan for $400 and you lose it, that's not micro debt. That's debt for the rest of your life. Um, in, so I, I can tell you horrible stories about microcredit, but micro banking is a better way of doing it, to get people to open bank accounts. And, and what we do with the money is for every dollar they save, we, we give them a dollar. And then when they've got a certain amount of money, show them on, look, you could dig a pond and grow fish. And 
you know, sell that. Or you could buy um, chickens and sell eggs or, you know, and set them up in these little, little um, basically industries that where, where we know there are markets, get a cow and you can produce milk, you know, um, your surplus milk you can, that you don't need for your family, you can sell to your village and so on and so on. There's so many ways that they can do it. They earn money and then once again, you know, we, we continue to add the, you know, dollar for dollar and get them to scale up their micro businesses that changes the way of thinking. They start going from being, you know, how can you say in many cases, feeling like they're victims. You empower them now to make a difference. And you go to these communities now and they, once again, they're out of prosperity, sorry, out of poverty into prosperity. And honestly, the amount of money that is needed just to, to meet, we're talking hundreds of dollars here and there, you know, instead of the billions that are wasted. If we can change the way we use it and actually get that money onto the ground and get that money to incentivize people to change, it makes a difference. The other one, which is really important with all the projects that we've looked at that are long-term and successful is that they have markets. That after the funding is stopped, that the income that comes in is from the market and from their initiatives to get that. And that becomes the driver. And we can walk away from funding because we're not needed now. They have a market. We can use that now for another group of people and help them access markets. So yeah, appropriate market-based systems are essential for bringing income to get people out of poverty. And kind of going on from that market-based um, solutions, I would like to now turn to kind of the, the, a more wider um, policy aspect. And that's the kind of green recovery that a number of nations and international organizations have proposed. So the UK, Europe, and the US have all kind of proposed a command-centric version of a green recovery. The US has its Green New Deal and as does the EU. And as we have seen in numerous case studies, government intervention can stifle innovation and entrepreneurship and lead to huge unintended consequences for the environment. So what role should governments employ in growing back green? And should businesses and individuals be the driving force in these policies? Yes, just uh, leveraging off all of the points that Andre was mentioning, uh, I think that the idea of, um, of fostering at least more decentralized solutions would go a long way, although what, what appears to be happening is it appears to be more of an agenda-based centralized approach, uh, which, which is not in the right direction, because at the end of the day, a decentralized localized approach is better because people that are local to the problem understand the issues, they understand the challenges, and more often than not have really great ideas to, to you know, mitigate whatever risks there are and, and make things better uh, for, for any of those uh, challenges to the environment and any of those risks to the environment. So 
So I, I think, um, uh, I mean, the idea of, of going back green, uh, yes, but it needs to be um, market-based as, as we have uh, discussed throughout the show here, all, all of the pillars of market-based environmentalism to, to promote that to the fullest extent possible. Once again, uh, I fully support what Richard is saying and localized. Local knowledge is the best. And, you know, the more you centralize, the further you are away from the issues and the problems, the less you understand, the worse the decision making is. It's the people on the ground who know what is happening. And that has to be where the focus is. Yes, we need central governments. We need um, funding to come from central governments, but we need to reverse where the power base is. And the power base has to be at local level and we have to empower local people. This is really important, empowering them to make their decisions for change instead of at the moment, we disempower them. They feel hopeless. You know, they, they feel like they're up against everything. Whereas when you turn it around and you start to empower them so they can make the decisions and you help them make the first ones, like I was getting back to the micro banking. Suddenly, instead of not having money, they've got money. Suddenly when they spend that money, they can start earning more money. You know, that empowers them. The case of the, the villages where they can now, you know, the women can buy nice dresses and start socialising. That empowers, that brings people together. You know, these sorts of things where we've got to think in terms of instead of in agronomy, we just think of empty fields and commodities. We have to think about communities in landscapes and work at that level and empower these people because they are the custodians of the landscape and empower them to be able to have a good standard of living and empower them to in terms of how to look after it. You know, examples I can give of places like Tigray, unfortunately, I'm now, I'm, thanks to the central government that they're in a civil war and war crimes are going on. But one of our members, this is when I was president of iPhone, worked with the local people and all the hills, everything was degraded through the bad forms of grazing. Instead of imposing it on them, working with them, making them, um, empowering them to be part of the solution, coming up with how to do it, working it, changing that around, all those hills, you can go to the areas where the project is and they're all forested, the biodiversity's back. Uh, it, the water's flowing again. <laughs> they can, you know, that we, the, the fields are, are full of crops, you know, by empowering these people, we can change it. And this is what it's about. And honestly, it does not need much money when we do it that way. Unfortunately, the way it's done at the moment, there are billions going out. And most of that is going into bank accounts in Panama and Cayman Islands because of corruption. And very little of it is actually going to the people who need it on the ground. We have to turn it around and use the dollars, you know, go straight, straight to the people who need it and empower them to make the changes that are needed. I absolutely agree. And I think only through 
local market-based solutions where people have a real stake in their surroundings and have real responsibility will real change come about in achieving a post-COVID green recovery. I'd like to thank you both very much for your time. Um, I usually end these by asking where we can find out more about your work. So Richard, would you like to start? Sure. Um, our website we have is cedarportfolio.com, C-E-D-A-R portfolio, all one word, dot com. And uh, yeah, we, we also provide uh, sustainability services and we have an asset allocation portfolio. And Andre. Okay, um, www.regenerationinternational, one word, dot org. And we have a lot of resources. We actually have a global map now of where um, regeneration is happening all around the planet. We work at the moment, we have 360 partners in 70 countries, and that is growing all the time. And I, I think one of the things that I want to end on is that I suppose, you know, I, I've had 50 years at this. I am a farmer myself. And I've never seen a more positive time. You know, things are changing and changing in the right way. You know, and I think I want to end on that. Instead of here all the negativity, but for those of us that have been here for a long time, we are just so full of hope because we know we can change it. And I want to get back to it. We don't have to change everything. If we can just start with 5%, we can turn this world around. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and if you'd like to learn more about the work of the British Conservation Alliance, uh, please follow us online at www.bca.eco or on the Twitter handle at BCA underscore eco. Thank you very much both for your time. This has been a fantastic conversation and I am filled with optimism. Great. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Green Market. Subscribe to our channels wherever you're listening to us to make sure you see every time we post a new episode.